Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, uh, one person over here. Everybody else's day is miserable. It's so cold and terrible in Phoenix in, in March, isn't it? 74 degrees or whatever it is today. Oh, oh, if we lived in some place like Chicago, you know, the warmth that we would experience. And maybe you guys would respond with more joy this morning. Uh, but anyway, uh, welcome. If you're new to Christ Bible Church, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great privilege of uh, taking us through God's Word here, the end of John chapter 15 and the very beginning of John chapter 16. So if you will open up your Bibles uh, with us to those pages, uh, we will begin uh, to... Uh, read the word of the Lord together. I'll give you all a minute to get there, and then we will uh, read. John chapter 15, uh, verse 18, the word of the Lord. If the word hates you, know that, it is, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would, not ha they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning." I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us such great encouragement that you give us these words, uh, despite how heavy they are, uh, Lord, they're not the words that we would go to if we uh, wanted to find some great uh, self-motivating message about how great everything is and how much we might accomplish and, and see if we just realized our truest self. Lord, no, we see that the path that you call your people on is a path destined for persecution. Uh, persecution. It's a path destined to uh, live in the midst of a world that rejects us. And so, Father, we pray that as we gather around your word this morning, as we gather in fellowship uh, as a community, Lord, that we would be encouraged. We would be encouraged uh, as we read the, your words to face the obstacles that we know we will face in our lives, that we would have the courage to live lives the way that you've called us to live, to be the people who witness and testify about you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our minds and our hearts to convict us, to shape us and mold us into your likeness as we read your word and preach it this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I thought about titling this sermon, Living with the Haters, uh, but Johnny convinced me otherwise. Uh, this 
text, as you begin to read it, uh, is, is not exactly the most motivating message you might give to your followers. All right, think about the worst news you ever had to share with somebody. This is the moment that Jesus is sitting there with these people, the devastation on the disciples' face. Long gone are those days in the countryside when they wandered around with Jesus and he miraculously provided bread and all kinds of things for them that they enjoyed the fellowship, that they saw the miracles, they, they even witnessed people coming back to life. Now they are sitting in this room as Jesus has repeatedly been telling them that he is about to die. He says, not only am I going to die, but now here in John 15, you also will die. Not exactly the most inspiring message that leads you to charge out if you're like a football player, like, let's go conquer the enemy. They're going to kill us. Uh, no, usually those are the people you're waving the white flag. You're not trying to get killed out there. Uh, just uh, as we see this, though, we have to understand what's happening. Jesus, even in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16, tells us, I tell you these things uh, to keep you from falling away. Jesus is preparing his disciples and even us today as we read this uh, for not just his departure, but what life will look like after his departure. What is life going to be like when they are no longer walking with the Savior? And what we have here is not a battle cry of victory. There's no promise of peace. What starts out simply as a question in verse 18, if the world hates you, is revealed as a certainty by 16.3. They will do these things. And I'm sure the disciples sat there and said, Woo! Uh, like, this is not the news we wanted to hear. The life of the disciples was going to be hard and a life of consistent opposition. Jesus says this plainly because he wants them to be prepared for what is coming. Even this coming persecution is under the control of Jesus, and they should not doubt him as they begin to face a life and death consequence for their commitment to him. He is preparing them to live without him. Uh, and so, as Christians, as we read this, we should not be surprised then also when we face opposition, because the Christian life is one that will always be at odds with the world. It is destined to do so. The world around us has rejected the creator and king, Jesus Christ, and as a result has rejected us. And so this morning, knowing that the world will oppose us as Christians, we will answer two questions from this section in the book of John. Uh, first, we must answer, why does the world hate them? Why does the world hate the disciples? Why was, does the world hate us then as Christians today? Why does the world hate Christians? Second, how are we to live in the midst of a world that hates us? How are we to live in the face of opposition? How are we to live in the midst of a world that absolutely hates us? And so question one, why does the world hate you? Jesus reveals two reasons here. First, the world hates us because of our identity. Second, the world hates us because of our work. The world hates us because of our identity and the world hates us because of our work. Look at verse 19. There's a statement of causality here. If you were of this world, the world was your people. If the world was your heritage, if it was your treasure, if it was your identity, then the world would love you. But that's not the case. Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them, to us this morning that have placed our faith in him, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world, and as a result, the world is full of hatred for you. 
He goes on to say, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if verse 20 stopped here, we would all readily understand what's going on. We believe that we belong to Jesus, and in that way, if they've treated Jesus in a certain way, we should expect, if we belong to him, if our identity is found in him, that they should treat us the same. A servant is not greater than his master, meaning if the master has to deal with it, the servant will as well. Uh, the master uh, is going to have to deal with death because of his work and word, and so will his followers. But the last line here in verse 20 begins to cause us to pause, and we'll see this is a little section that gets a little tricky here in chapter 15. Uh, so it's not readily apparent what Jesus means, though, after he follows this, they persecuted me, they will persecute you, when he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And we're saying, okay, well, this is everybody saying persecution. The world hates you. The world's going to kill you. It's going to come after all these things. And then right here in the middle, they say, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And many people read this and just assume that they're saying that they won't keep his word because they're persecuting them. Uh, and when he says they will also keep yours, it's as if he's saying they won't keep your word. Be ready uh, because persecution is coming. Think about everything so far in this verse, though. I'm going to read it again. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The ifs in these opening verses here are not really questions, but statements of causality. If you belong to the world, but then we understand on an aside, even though it doesn't say, you don't belong to the world, the world would love you, but the world doesn't love you, but you belong to me. So negative statement, positive statement. Then we go here. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Negative statement. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Positive statement. Right? So what we're left here is we're trying to answer this question is, does the world keep his word? No. So this verse cannot be talking about them. The ones that keep his word are the ones that are not of this world. And so we should understand what he is saying here at the end of verse 20. Uh, as speaking opposite of the ones that are persecuting. There are those in the world who will persecute, and there are those in the world who will receive my word. This is a statement meant to prevent the disciples from spiraling into despair and thinking nothing matters. Right? He's saying all these things. They're going to kill you. They're going to hunt you in the synagogues. Persecution is coming. They hate you. Uh, it's a very negative message. And if they are normal people, they will then say, well, then what's the point? Right? Why would I live in the midst of a world that hates me, that wants to hunt me down, that's going to kill me? Wouldn't it be better if I just left this world, if they were all destined to hate me? If everyone's going to resist, why put forth the effort? Jesus is saying, though, don't give up, because when they, uh, when, and when they reject your message, and they even reject your message violently, uh, there will also be those who hear my word and listen. Just as he's sitting amongst these disciples who were of the world, and now they're not of the world, they belong to Jesus, he's saying, look it, even in this room, there are those who kept my word, who followed me. Uh, it might be the minority of the people, but there is still some out there. It's to keep us from being like Elijah in the book of Kings when he's complaining to the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And the Lord, the, the Lord gives him like a nice slap on the face and says, you silly Elijah, there's Many, many thousands that are left that haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet, 
Uh, you are not alone. You might feel like you're alone because it's such a minority, but you are not alone. And to the disciples here, when they're about to be faced with uh, situations that will cause them to perhaps despair, he's saying, you will not be alone. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. There will always be some that hear me. So what is this word then? Well, this is the truth that Jesus has been proclaiming his entire ministry, salvation through the Messiah. What is the book of John about fundamentally? That Jesus is the son of God. Over and over, he has signs, he has messages to confirm that he alone is the one from God, indeed the one who is God. And if these people would place their faith in him, accept his word and work, they would receive salvation. But instead, these people have rejected him. We're reminded that in verse 21 when it says, uh, but these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the Father. They don't want the work. This is the world uh, of Jesus. But in that moment, these disciples are reminded here in verse 20 that even when all seems lost, God is still drawing people to himself and there will always be some who keep his word. While persecution is an inevitability, there is bound to be positive responses to the gospel by some. They should keep going. So why does the world hate these disciples? Why does the world hate us as Christians? We belong to Jesus. They hate Jesus because they don't know him, and they have denied him. Hatred from the world on the most basic level is rooted in a denial of Jesus. If the world uh, accepted Jesus, it wouldn't hate him. But because they have denied Jesus, they are bound to hate him. This leads right into another, perhaps even more confusing verse in verse 22. Let's read it together again. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. We read this and we begin to be thoroughly confused. Wait, hold on. Why would we present the gospel to anybody if presenting the gospel then opens the avenue for sin? Is Jesus really saying, if I never came, these people wouldn't be guilty of sin? I've heard multiple times in my life, it's not common, but a few times, even from some uh, pastors, uh, that we should not evangelize the unreached parts of the world because if we send Christians there, if we send missionaries to a, a nation or a people that have never heard the word of Jesus, and then they preach the word of Jesus, and these people don't respond in faith, then we have brought condemnation on them. But if we just simply let them be, they never have a chance to deny Jesus, and so then they'll maybe be saved. And so we just shouldn't really work with missions very much. This is a totally irresponsible and bad reading of John 15. But it happens, and we need to talk about it. It's not consistent with Scripture. Romans 1.18 tells us this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What then is Jesus talking about? If we know scripture says all have sinned, we can go a little bit further in Romans. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that there's no excuse for sin, that all have uh, an ability to see God and yet have rejected him. Romans 1. Then John cannot be saying here in chapter 15 that uh, if Jesus didn't come, these people would not be sinners. John cannot be saying these words in reference to all sin. Rather, it's a specific sin that's at hand. Right before this uh, section known as the Upper Room Discourse, 13 to 17, there's another section that Christians love to quote, John 12, 47. I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to save the world. Uh, and they're like, we should just love everybody. And, we, and you have these people who are like, I don't want to condemn. I just love, 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 love everybody. I'm overflowing with love on all things. Christians shouldn't condemn lifestyles. They should just be people who love. And so they misapply John 12, 47, because they don't read John 12, 48, which says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So while Jesus says, I'm not here to judge you, my work is not to act as a judge as he's walking around the earth. He's, his work is to be salvation to sinners. But his words, who he is, who he's revealing himself to be, will be the judge because if they reject him, they reject salvation. And so while some Christians use these verses to talk about an inability or, or a reluctance to send people on missions or even uh, a reluctance to condemn certain lifestyles, we see this is at odds with Scripture. Jesus might be saying, I don't literally judge right now as he's there in John 12, uh, but he's saying, if you reject my words, this is what you will be judged on. If you refuse to believe in me, in what I said, as a result, the judgment of God will come upon you because you did not believe my words. And if we take this and now we fast forward back to John 15, we see when he says my word, and what is he talking about here? He's talking about the presentation of the gospel, about salvation, about Jesus as the Messiah. And so what I believe here he is referring to as sin is the sin of the rejection of Jesus. It's not this idea of all sin, for we see clearly in Scripture that it cannot be referring to all sin. But if he's saying they are without sin, it is a specific sin, this, the, the rejection of Christ, which in a sense is the ultimate sin. To reject the words of Jesus is to reject the path out of sin. Jesus' words have offered salvation, but the world has rejected it. They, never, they neither believed his words nor his works here in John uh, 15, 22, and 24, and so he makes it very clear in John 12, 48, that their rejection will be the words that they are judged by. And so why does, why does the world hate Jesus? And by extension, his followers, they have rejected him and they have rejected salvation. Hatred from the world is a denial of Jesus. And so why does the world hate this? Because, or hate us? Because we belong to Jesus Christ. And if we belong to Jesus, we teach the word of Jesus and we do the work of Jesus. Both are not received well. Jesus is persecuted even to the point that he's going to be killed on a cross because of his word and because of his work. And he's telling his disciples and us very plainly, expect the same. There is no tolerance from the world 
uh, for the message of Jesus Christ. So when the world says, we just want everybody to be tolerant, we want everybody to, to stand true, that's obviously not the case. We see time and time again that the world outside is tolerant to every single worldview except for the Christian worldview. Why is that? Because the world is at odds with the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's message is a condemnation on the world that without him, they are destined to perish. They are in sin and without a savior. The world cannot stand the words and work of Jesus because he testifies to the world that they are wicked, that they need a savior to save them. And if the world does not change, if they do not believe in Jesus, the action that the world must take is to reject him as violently as possible. Right, think of it as like a really bad blister. Right? You get a blister, what does your body do? You get all this like this big bubble and pus, your body is literally rejecting it. It's painful, but you're like, I gotta get this thing out of here. It doesn't belong here. It makes my body uncomfortable. It's bringing pain and, and infection. To the world, this is what Jesus is. It must get him out of the world as, as quickly as possible uh, under any means necessary. They must reject him and push him out. It should not be a surprise to us then, today, or even when we read about the disciples, that the more those who follow Christ grow into the likeness of Christ, the more that those who follow Christ uh, become a reminder of Christ, the more uh, radically the world will reject them. Right? If we look like the world, it doesn't want to get rid of us that quickly. But the more we look like Christ, the one that the world has rejected, the more radically the world will respond in trying to rid us of, uh, of the world. Those who reject the king, those who are of the world, not only miss the gift of the king, but fall under the judgment of the king. And so they respond with burning anger towards the ones that are a reminder of that coming judgment. This is what is happening here. Fundamentally, this scripture is teaching us something. We all belong to somebody. In a sense, we are all slaves. We are either slaves to Christ or we're slaves to the world. Even in our modern society, it says we're all autonomous. We can do whatever we want. Secular society, nobody rules me, my body, my choice. We hear all these kinds of foolish words. Fundamentally, we belong to one of two camps, the world or Jesus. Our actions will either further the purposes of the world or they'll further the purposes of Jesus. We live for one of two masters. If we belong to the world and we serve the purposes of the world, our causes uh, that we care about, the things that we do, will advance worldly things. Paul in Galatians gives us a list of some of these, many that are looked at positively in our nation today. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. We love those things in secular America, right? We worship those things. Uh, sorcery. We love sorcery. There's witches all around. If you have kids in public school, there are kids identifying as witches. And everyone's like, that's so cool, there's witches, right? We love in the secular world these things that are evil, right? What does that mean? It means they serve the world. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness. How many times have you asked somebody, how was your weekend? They're like, it was awesome. I got wasted, right? And you talk to somebody at work and, and you just shake your head and you say, you're living for the world. You are a slave to the world. Orgies, things like these, as Paul writes, I warn you and I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They don't belong to the kingdom of God. They belong to the world. 
And so as we read this here, we have to be reminded, we belong somewhere. We are not really, truly ever independent. If we belong to Christ, we are a slave to Christ, body and soul. We have no claim on ourselves. We belong fully to him. This is the call of the Christian life, a life that is committed to the word and work of Jesus. Opposition to this is a response to us living this way, to being agents of exposure, to being agents of a world, uh, of a kingdom that's not of this world, of being opposed to that which would further the advances of the world. We witness about the light, and when we do so, we expose darkness. Hatred from the world is guaranteed. When Jesus, in the end of the sections, 16, 3 uh, and 4, says, they will put you out of synagogues, they will kill you uh, as an act of offering to God, it's not something reserved for the first or second century. We should continue to expect these things take place today. And one uh, scholar and uh, missionary from the 20th century wrote in 1990 uh, that his estimation doing studies was that somewhere between 26 and 27 million Christians died from 1900 to 1990 for the sake of Christ, right? Places like China, the Soviet Union, Cambodia, Angola, Ethiopia, Uganda, places that intense persecution against Christians broke out in the 20th century, right? Some of you in here immigrated to the United States because of the persecution against Christians. It should not be a surprise to us that this happens. But the problem is many of us in the West have been shielded from this type of violence towards us. And we should not forget that not only do the words of Jesus here mean literally death, uh, but that it still exists and is somewhat common. There are brothers and sisters all over the world at this very moment who have to give their life because the world hates them with such a great intensity. Because they belong to Jesus, they will forfeit even their life. And for us here in the nice suburbs of Phoenix, we must look at these people and say, if they can do that, certainly we can endure public shame for our views and our life. And so we must turn our attention this morning to the second question. How are we to live in the midst of a world that hates us? How are we to live in a world that wants to silence us, that wants to persecute us? Three ways. First, and I want to highlight this because this is something that I've struggled with most of my life and I see many other Christians struggling with. How should we live in the midst of a world that is persecuting us, that hates us? Well, we should not live like we're better than them. Right? Many Christians have this eye of condemnation on the world and we think of ourselves as intrinsically superior. Because we're Christians, we're not like all these sinners out there. Uh, and we look at ourselves like some reason we are better. Uh, we're not conscious of our sinful nature. Uh, we don't see ourselves as objects of wrath apart from Christ. And so we think of ourselves as genuinely better than all of these heathens in the world. Uh, and so we have this, this aura of condemnation. Think of the person that you dislike the most in the entire world. Uh, like, they're not a Christian, or maybe they are a Christian, hopefully not. Uh, but you dislike them, right? You wish ill on them, right? Don't lie to me. I know there's somebody out there that you're thinking of right now. Right? Think of that person. Think of that person, hold them in your mind, and then answer this question. Do they deserve God's grace more or less than you? Right? Do they deserve God's grace at all? No. And we would say, yes, that's why I hate them. Uh, but the real question is, do you deserve God's grace? And the answer is also no. You are just as wicked, as evil, as despicable as them apart from Christ. 
And so we have to resist the temptation that we come uh, when we become Christians to start thinking of ourselves like we are worthy of the gift of salvation. We aren't. In the good grace of Jesus, he's given it to us. And we are thankful for him for doing that. We worship him. We are totally unworthy. We've done nothing to merit salvation, yet he's given it to us anyway. That's the same attitude we should have. We should resist the temptation then to have a posture of superiority towards those who don't know Christ. We're not better than them. We should pray that they would come to see the life-giving grace of Jesus, not that they would come to see the folly in their ways. Second, and this ties right into this, we should be testifiers. How do we live in a world that dislikes us, that hates us? Well, we should live as testifiers. This is what John is working towards here. How do we do this? Well, in 1526, we rely on the helper who goes before us to witness uh, about Jesus. Just as Christ has brought these people to himself, literally in this upper room, so also the Holy Spirit is a witness first and foremost in the world. It's testifying about the Son. It's testifying about the Father. And so if we were to live as testifiers, we first do this by relying on the Holy Spirit, knowing that when we go to somebody, the Holy Spirit has already gone out and is at work. And so the Spirit is the first witness, and we are the second witness. And so the burden falls off on this. This is a very relieving thing when you're trying to share the news of Jesus with somebody, to, th to think, man, I used to think it's all on me. So if my best friend in high school, most of them aren't Christians, rejected Christ, it's because I was a really bad Christian, and I couldn't articulate Christ in such a way that would convince them that they should follow him. Uh, but when you start to read scripture, you begin to understand that it doesn't matter how cunning you are, it matters about the work of Jesus. And so we live as testifiers, uh, knowing we rely on the Holy Spirit to go before us and do the witnessing, and we follow by being testifiers. We're not uh, passive. We don't just say, like, if God's going to save somebody, he's going to save somebody. I don't need to do anything. No. Like, we're commanded to be testifiers. Scripture says this over and over and over again. We share Jesus, and when we do so, we shine a light into darkness. But we do this, uh, I think, uh, often poorly and foolishly. As Christians, many of us, because sometimes we think we're better than other people, uh, we like to discuss darkness. Right? What do I mean by that? It's like we get around, what do we do when we, when we hang out as Christians? Uh, we often talk about like, oh man, do you see the crazy things they're doing in schools these days? Can you believe our government? Can you believe blah, 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 all the things that are wrong with this world, all the terrible things that we encounter, uh, and we just like to talk about darkness. Uh, and we don't become agents of light. We're not testifiers of the goodness of Jesus. We're just testifiers about the badness of darkness. Uh, we don't actually point people towards the light. Uh, but when we testify, we should be shining a light in the darkness. We should be bringing the witness in the words of Jesus into a place that desperately needs this. But instead of talking about Jesus, about what he's done, about the hope that we have, we instead just talk about everything we see that's wrong in this world. And we just live uh, to discuss darkness. What if Christians put a fraction of the effort that they have into being people who shine lights into darkness that they do discussing the threat of darkness, right? Darkness really has no threat. Think about darkness. Fundamentally, it can never overcome even the weakest light. Like think about the most pathetic flashlight you ever had, right? What happens the, the darker a room gets? Right? It gets brighter, right? No amount of darkness can ever outdo even the faintest of lights. Right? It's always going to shine. It can't be extinguished by darkness. 
But what does light do? Light extinguishes darkness. It's not a threat to us. And so we shouldn't live our lives like the darkness is some great threat. We have Jesus. He is our anchor. We don't need to fear anything else. Darkness does not have the ability to overpower light. What changes people isn't well-articulated arguments about their choices or lifestyles. Fundamentally, what changes people is encountering the light. Be committed to people who talk about your faith and your hope more than anything else. We should be bringing the light, the truth of Scripture, the message that Jesus came to this world to save sinners and offer salvation to a rebellious people. The words of John 8, 32 are so true. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, breaks the power of sin. We should be people whose lives are centered on the word and work of Jesus. Let that be the message. Let that be what drives us as we proclaim the truth, resting on the power of God. Finally, the third, third way that we should live, we should live our lives with confidence. Fundamentally, this is one of the things that Jesus knows is going to happen most readily to the disciples. They are going to lack confidence. We see it happening very quickly. What happens as soon as Jesus is arrested in a few short chapters, they scatter like cockroaches, right? These disciples run for the hills. Peter's sitting around the campfire and they say, hey, aren't you with that Jesus guy? He's like, I don't, I don't know Jesus. Who's Jesus? I heard of a Jesus before, right? These disciples are so fearful. As soon as Jesus gets arrested, Jesus knows the threat of their confidence in him, in the message that he has taught will be shaken. And so he commands them and tells them, live with confidence. Don't live with fear. You will face opposition. I know it's coming, but you do not need to fear it for it's exactly what we should expect it's the logical outplaying of a world that rejects my message. They will reject you, but know that there will be some that respond. Don't lose hope. Don't lose confidence. The response of the world to our message is not up to us, but we are not exempt from being testifiers. We can share with confidence because in the end, the result is up to the Lord. Whether that's our own shame or even death or whether that's the conversion of those that we share all of that rests in the hands of the Lord. We are just to be the feet that bring that message. Three applications or questions for us to, to uh, uh, look at ourselves this morning as we finish. First, is your life defined by the pursuit of the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, or is it defined by a pursuit of the things of this world? idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, drunkenness. What does this reveal about who you truly belong to? Who is your Lord? Who are you following? You have to follow somebody. Let this be a question to help you, maybe if you haven't yet committed to Jesus, uh, to say, I need to follow Jesus and respond this morning in faith to him. Second, are you a testifier of Jesus? If so, how does your life testify to the word and work of Jesus? Does anybody know that you're a Christian? Do your neighbors know? Do your coworkers know? Do your kids even know? Right? Which we laugh like, of course they know. I go to church. But maybe not. Maybe Jesus is so irrelevant in your life as you go home throughout the week that your kids are like, I don't, I don't, my, dad's, my dad goes to church, but I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know what that means. 
Are you testifying about Jesus through the word uh, and work in your life? And finally, what is your approach towards those who don't belong to Jesus? Are you somebody who fixates on darkness or do you seek to shine a light? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We confess our inadequacies. We confess the, the ways that we fall short so often. But Lord, we thank you that we can rest in the goodness and grace of Jesus. That he didn't leave us bound to our sin, but Lord, he came and paid the price that we might be a redeemed people. Let us live a life and have a posture in our life that sees our fundamental reason for living is to sharing and exemplifying and glorifying you. Lord, might we be the people who talk about the word and work of Jesus. Lord, might we be people who don't fixate on all that is wrong, but we fixate on the one who will make all right. Lord, this is our desire. Help to shape us and mold us into your followers that you need us to be. Help us to be so despicable and distasteful to the world because of our allegiance to you. Help our lives to scream about our allegiance to you everywhere we go, not with anger, not with a sense of superiority, but with a sense of radical devotion and love for Jesus and for what he's done. Lord, thank you that we can gather together as your people. Thank you that we can open up your word to find encouragement and to be taught and to be molded and shaped into the disciples and followers that you desire us to be. Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that your word will be at work in our hearts, shaping and forming us even as we leave this morning. Amen.